0: Hello, everybody. This is Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Carol Emberton, the author of To Walk About in Freedom, The Long Emancipation of Priscilla Joyner. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
1: Well, I'm a native of Kentucky, so I'm a native Southerner, although now I've lived outside of the South for longer than I ever lived there. Um, But I've always, ever since childhood, uh, been troubled, I guess you could say, really by the history of race relations in the South. And so when I got to college and then later in graduate school, you know, I took that as an opportunity to, um, you know, to figure some of these things out that had been sort of troubling me and bothering me all of my life. Um, And that led me into uh, investigating the history of slavery and eventually the history of the Civil War and emancipation.
0: Why was the decision made to standardize the dialect used in the interviewing transcript?
1: Many of the people who were involved with sort of um, creating the Ex-Slave Narratives program, they were very much interested in how uh, rural Black Southerners spoke and to tr- and trying to convey that um, to people who would be reading uh, these interviews on paper rather than listening to them. And of course, as I talk about in the book, there's a long history um, of trying to, uh, convey or represent black speech that had, you know, led to a, a history of, you know, sort of caricaturing the way, uh, black Southerners sounded, particularly to white people and to white writers who were trying to convey that. So that, you know, if you read some of the old, you know, Uncle Remus tales or things like that, they come off as clownish, childish, backward. Um, And that's the way a lot of people, particularly white Americans at the time, thought rural black people spoke. Uh, and how rural Black people were. So there was a sort of a tension uh, within the Federal Writers Project from people who were sort of working out of that tradition, and others like Sterling Brown, who was a Harlem Renaissance poet, who was also involved uh, with the project, who wanted to capture sort of the, the creative quality of rural Black Southern speech, the idioms, turns of phrase, things like that, Um, but was also very aware of how white people often read Black speech. And so he warned interviewers, uh, you know, against that kind of, um, you know, caricaturing of Black speech that you often get when you read some of these transcripts
0: so you decided for your book to standardize
1: yes to st- so when i am quoting from these interviews a lot of times you you do have uh, you know the white people who conducted the interviews who will you know do things like s- the word was w a s but they will spell it w u z um and they, they wrote in that dialect kind of writing. Um, and Sterling Brown had issued, you know, very explicit instructions for these interviewers not to do that. <laughs> um, and so when I went back through and I would encounter, uh, you know, things that he had said don't do... Um, I, you know, didn't do it because I, you know, I, I followed his instructions. That's how I, you know, I thought of it to myself. I want to follow what Sterling Brown's instructions were because he was afraid it was going to cast the, uh, the narrators themselves in a particularly bad light. Um, and as someone who has taught these interviews before, and I teach them to my students all the time, it seems to put up a wall oftentimes between the person who is reading them um and what the narrator is trying to say and when uh that language is is um Presented in that way, uh, you know, a lot of times I've encountered students who just really can't get past it. So I didn't want the reader to be distracted or repelled um, by what they we're reading. I really wanted them to get a sense and really think about what these people were saying um, and take it seriously.
0: Okay, let's look at Priscilla's life. Her mother was presumed to be a. Uh, Caucasian woman, and she was presumed to have a black father. Now, she was in the home of white people. How do you think this impacted her for 12 years?
1: I think it, it was very hard on her, and when you read her interview transcript, you can see that even though, you know, it's, she's 80-something years old when she's giving this interview, she's still struggling with it. So, the woman who raised her, who was the woman who claimed to be her her biological mother, you can see Priscilla struggling with that because of the experiences that she had growing up in that white home. As the story goes, the story that Annalisa told Priscilla later on was that she and her husband, Annalisa's husband, a man named Ricks Joyner, had had a falling out because Ricks had uh, sold the two enslaved people that Analyze's father had given to her when she and Ricks got married and he had sold them without her permission. So she kicks him out of the house. He's kind of a ne'er-do-well type person. And while he's gone away from the home for some period of time, she has an affair with a black man and she will never say who it was. Um, and she becomes pregnant and Priscilla is born and when Rick's return eventually returns to the home, of course, he finds this this black baby and uh, his wife claiming that it's hers. Um, and you know, he's sort of forced to live, you know, with this new circumstance. the The, the story goes, according to Ann that she makes a deal with him that he doesn't have to pay her back for those two enslaved people that he sold if he will accept Priscilla as her daughter and they'll all live in this and allow her to keep her and they'll all live in the same household. So that's how the story goes. But Rick's is obviously not happy about this. According to what Priscilla says, he treats her terribly. He teaches the other white children, presumably um, Priscilla's half siblings to torment her, to ostracize her. Um, And, you know, that sets her up as sort of an outsider within this household um, that she's raised within. And Annalisa, if she is indeed her biological mother, doesn't seem to be willing or able to do much about how her husband and how the other children treat Priscilla.
0: Why do you think Priscilla's mother sent her to live with a black family?
1: According to Priscilla, this happens when she's about 12 years old. So this is after the civil war, it's after emancipation in North Carolina. Um, and according to Priscilla, she's getting older. And she says something really interesting in the interview. She says uh, her older, uh, well, her, the, the o- there are two older daughters and there are two younger sons. And the younger half-brother's, analyzes white sons that she has with Rick are getting old enough that they're jumping on they're starting to jump on her and she doesn't really say what she means by that other than they they're starting to kind of physically assault her It seems. And so Annalisa, I think, is worried about Priscilla's safety. Um, And it's kind of becoming increasingly clear that even though Rick's is no longer in the home, he's actually killed during the Civil War, that um, this is not the place for Priscilla. And that perhaps it's time for her to go, according to what Priscilla says, to be with her own people. So she sends her to a live with a nearby uh, Black family, uh, and to go to a, a freedman's school with other um, Black children, um, and to be, as Priscilla says, this is what Pris- is to be with
0: her own people. Now, tell us about the project of Professor Roscoe Lewis and Miss Thelma Dunstan. How How were they limited on really telling the truth? And how did this book connect with that project?
1: Right. So Roscoe Lewis and Thelma Dunstan worked for the Virginia Writers Project, which was sort of the state-level version of the federal writers project. Each state had its own sort of state-level organization of that. Um, And Virginia um, had about... 12 usually a dozen sometimes around 10 the number kind of fluctuated black interviewers one of them was Thelma Dunstan who were going around the state interviewing formerly enslaved people and Roscoe Lewis was their supervisor now he had been a chemistry professor at Hampton University um but like a lot of people during the Great Depression he Took the opportunity, you know, to take this job with the Virginia Writers Project, um, and. Uh, He was the supervisor of Dunstan and the other uh, black field workers in Virginia. He did some of the interviews as well. Um, And he was uh, working on uh, a book called The Negro in Virginia, which was going to be published using these interviews. And it was basically sort of writing the history of the state from the black perspective. Um, The problem was... Roscoe Lewis's supervisor was a white woman named uh, Eudora Ramsey Richardson. Um, And she edited that text, the manuscript of the Negro in Virginia, with a very heavy hand. Um, And she was uh, not unlike a lot of white supervisors in these projects. She was very skeptical of... Um, the whole project of interviewing ex-slaves. She thought a lot of what they were telling were sort of like tall tales and stories that couldn't be believed, that were full of exaggeration. She thought particularly that Roscoe Lewis was sort of a gullible uh, person who just believed anything Um, these uh, elderly people were telling him. She didn't think he was critical enough of the stories. And she was particularly disturbed by tales of abuse that these people had experienced when they were enslaved. Um, And so she would try to um, edit those kinds of stories out of the manuscript that, that Lewis was producing for the Negro in Virginia. Um, and in some cases, she would even go and re interview people he had interviewed because she was so, in, you know, she didn't believe, uh, you know, that she would read the transcript of the interview and think, oh, that couldn't have possibly happened. And she would go and try to re interview people. Um, so Lewis and Dunstan uh, and the other uh, black field workers who were conducting these interviews and trying to make them available uh, for a wider audience are. You know, they're limited in their ability to do that um, by supervisors like Richardson and by just the general, um, you know, desire of, of white editors and the people who are in charge of these projects, you know, not to paint uh, the history of the state that they were working on, in this case, Virginia, in a negative light.
0: Now, what were some of the events in Mrs. Persisler-Jorner's life that examined the relationships between Blacks and whites. Which um, example would you like to give us?
1: Well, I think it's, you know, when she's 12 years old, she uh, moves to a nearby town about 10 miles away from where she was born um, that is uh, next to Tarboro, North Carolina. And it was uh, right next to Tarboro was a black settlement of ex-slaves called, at the time it was called Freedom Hill or Liberty Hill. It was later, uh, a few decades later, incorporated as the town uh, of Princeville, North Carolina, which still exists in Edgecombe County today. Um, And it was there living amongst this community of formerly enslaved people that you know, Priscilla, I think, you know, really began to feel a part of what it was like to be part of a community and to have her people. It's where she met her husband uh, the man that would become her husband. Um, and, you know, the, the, the settlement of Freedom Hill really had, you know, an interesting story. Um, it was on a land that had been owned by um, uh, this man, this slave owner called L.L. Uh, L. Dancy, And in the years, you know, say the 10 years or so, you know, after the Civil War, even though uh, these former slaves of Dancy's are now free, I found in the records of the state archives of North Carolina, all of these instances where he's trying to apprentice black children against their parents or their guardian's will. And he's trying to maintain his control over the people that he once owned that he no longer does Um, but what you see there is really sort of a thriving community come into being um, and you know, it becomes, you know, this town, it becomes one of the first all black towns in the United States. And I actually think, you know, Princeville claims to be sort of the longest standing uh, black town in the United States. And it's still there today. So the story, you know, Priscilla's personal story also sort of dovetails with the story of this community uh, there in, in Princeville in Edgecombe County. Um, and it's really a wonderful, beautiful story.
0: Now in the book you said she was a member of the character generation. Can you explain what are you meaning by character generation?
1: Yeah. I call these people who were interviewed by the Federal Writers Project, these former slaves who were being interviewed in the nineteen thirties. They're all very elderly people by that time. But I refer to them as the Charter Generation of Freedom because they are the people who were born into slavery. Uh, but who experienced the Civil War uh, and emancipation firsthand. They're eyewitnesses to these events, and they live through these tumultuous decades. Um, and they have these amazing emancipation stories that are available in the transcripts of these interviews that really give us a ground-level, um, personal intimate view into what it was like to live through that transition and to think about what it was going to mean to be free and to and what kind of lives um you know what kind of things were possible and i think a lot of times you know when we think about the civil war and the reconstruction years we think a lot about the right to vote You know, and civil rights, and those are really important stories to be told. But what you don't get a lot of when you read the historical literature are these kinds of intimate, very personal stories um, about people who were sort of deciding, you know, where should I live? Where should I go? Um, what what could I possibly do with my life now that I couldn't do before? You know, who's going to love me? Um, who am I going to get married to? Do I want to get married? Um, and these are really personal um, kinds of struggles and decisions that they have to make that you don't often read when you read about um, the political and the cultural upheavals of this time. So that's what I was wanting to really bring to light in this book. Um, And those are all available, and I found them when I was reading these interviews.
0: Okay, tell us about The Disciplined Imagination and how you use that in telling Mrs. Priscilla Joyner's story.
1: You know, I say in the book that this is really not a biography of Priscilla Joyner because there are so many gaps um, in what I know about her. And that is true for... Most people who were formerly enslaved, if you're writing about enslaved people or people who were formerly enslaved, you know, you face this problem as a historian that there are a lot of gaps, right, that you can't always fill in. You might find a document here or a piece of evidence there, and you, you know, you can, and you have to fill in a lot of these gaps, Um to the, to the best that you can. And so historians, those of us who work in these sort of fragmented archives and who really want to try to understand the lives of enslaved and formerly enslaved people and to take them ser- seriously, you have to kind of use a disciplined imagination to think about, you know, what... Um, People might have been thinking or feeling or going through at a particular moment in time when you may not necessarily have a document or any kind of documentary evidence um, that tells you exactly what was going on. Um, Now, there's a school of historical thought. (coughs) excuse me, or study that says, well, if you don't have a document, if you don't have, you know, hard evidence, then you can't say, and we don't know, and you just can't go there. The problem with that view um, is that you wouldn't, then these people like Priscilla Joyner and the Charter Generation of Freedom and enslaved people, you'd never be able to write about them. In any kind, with any kind of depth or any kind of detail, because there is so much we don't know. Um, so it's important to, you know, you read deeply, you find everything you can, um, but then you have to rely on, um, you know, your own sort of sense of, you know, human um, interaction and human uh, uh, desire and understanding to think about. Um, how the world, how, you know, people like Priscilla Joyner, you know, encountered the world um, at that point in time.
0: Now you talk about the census enumerator. How did they go about describing people's racial identifications?
1: Mm -hmm. So That changed over time in the mid 19th century, the 1850s and the 1860s. um, 1860 is when Priscilla, she's born in 1858. So the first time she appears in a census is the 1860 census. And at that time, uh, the racial categories that were available were white or a white person, um, black B for a black person and M um, mulatto for a person that appeared to be mixed race or of a lighter skin tone than a black person. (coughs) So obviously at the time, a lot of that depends on um, sort of a visual interpretation of whoever the enumerator is, right? And someone, you know, might look at a person and say, oh, they look dark skin to me, so I'll put black. But another enumerator might see a person with a similar skin tone and say, Oh, that's a light skinned person, and they would put M. And so it's it's all very subjective, right? And of course it it's going on the notion at the time that you could look at somebody and tell what race they are. But of course we know things, you know, genetics are much more complicated than that. And there were people who were so light skinned that they could pass for white, or you could look at them and think that they were quote unquote white. Um, And so it was very, very complicated. But the way the census was organized at that time, um, just reflected the general idea that you could look at someone and easily tell what race they were.
0: Mrs. Joyner made a trip to see her mother every year, but there was one year that she didn't make that trip to see her biological mother. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So this is when she's living um, in Edgecombe County and she's going to school the years from, she's about 12 to 16, 17 years old. And she says every year she would go home for Christmas uh, to visit Aunt Eliza and the other members of that household Of her, that family. Um, But I think it's about when she's 16. She doesn't go home that year because she's met a fellow. Uh, And it's a man named Lewis Joyner. They have the same last name because he is actually had been enslaved by another member of the sort of extended Joyner family. The Joyner's. There are many, 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 many joiners in uh, sort of Nash and Edgecombe County, um, North Carolina, at that time. Um, they're all, many of them, I'd say the vast majority of them are related either by marriage or by blood. Um, and so Lewis Joyner had been enslaved by one of the many white joiners um, in the area. Um, so she had met Lewis. He's older than she is by about four or five years, um, and they've fallen in love. And he asked her that year, you know, don't go home, don't leave, stay here with me for Christmas. And so that's what she does that year.
0: Now, free people rush to marry. What were some of the advantages that they gain?
1: Yeah, many uh, formerly enslaved people, when they are able to legally marry um, after emancipation, they do so. They want to legalize uh, long standing relationships. Many of them have been in, you know, non-recognized marriages from for many many years and they wanted the legal protections that went with being in a legally sanctioned marriage so they would go to the justice of the peace or whoever uh, and get that long-standing relationship sort of recognized by the state Um, and this was also the first opportunity that many of them had to sort of openly sort of say, you know, I choose to marry this person and I choose to commit, you know, and make this um, commitment to them. Because when they had been enslaved, of course, they couldn't do that. Many of them had long standing relationships, but those were always um, <coughs> dependent upon sort of the will of whoever the white slave owner was to allow those relationships to be in the first place or to continue. Um, the old saying for enslaved people had been that their wedding vows were um, until love or sale, do you part, right? Because a slave owner could at any point in time decide to break up a family Um and you know sell the husband sell the wife in separate places and that was it and they had no control over that but once slavery is over and once they have the opportunity to legally marry and to be recognized by the state as legally married that was that no, was no longer going to happen right so this was about taking control of their own personal Uh, lives, getting, you know, the kind of recognition from the state that we all, you know, the kind of legal benefits that we recognize as going to married couples, people who are legally married, their children are now, quote unquote, legitimate, right? And they're theirs, and they can't be uh, taken away from them. People who still weren't married, single mothers, um, At the time, even after slavery is over, um, are still, their children are still vulnerable because the state can come in and apprentice uh, the children of a single mother at the time um, if the state feels that she can't provide for them. But being married, if she were married um, in, in a legal, legally recognized um, marriage, that wouldn't happen to her. So there are real, you know, legal benefits to being married and to having those relationships
0: legalized. Priscilla and Lewis started their life in Stony Creek. Um, Lewis had a half white brother. Tell us the relationship and why he ended up moving his family.
1: So Stony Creek, this is sort of the neighborhood. It's a rural neighborhood, not far from, not far from Freedom Hill or Rocky Mount or the place was where Lewis and Priscilla were born and grew up. So it's all in that general, um, you know, location. They move. And, you know, after their marriage, they set up a house and Lewis is sharecropping. He is working for, uh, a man called, uh, Ruben Joyner, who is most likely his older half brother. White. Reuben is white. So Reuben owns the land. Lewis is renting or working for shares on the land. Um, And they're there probably for about 10 years. And, And so this is actually a part of the book where I sort of, you know, use a disciplined imagination to imagine what it was like for Lewis to be working for the man who was most likely his older brother, uh, we don't exactly know what Priscilla is doing at the time, but if she is like other sharecroppers' wives at the time, she's most likely cooking and taking in laundry to earn extra money. So she is probably doing uh, Reuben and his family's wash, right? So Lewis is not only working for his half-brother, um, his wife is probably washing his half-brother's, you know, and his half-brother's family's dirty laundry. Um, And they're also living at the time when in the late 1870s and the 1880s, lynching is starting to become, uh, you know, a real problem. Um, in the South, and there's a lynching that happens during this period not far from where Lewis and Priscilla are living. Um, they're having children. Um, I imagine, you know, it's not hard to imagine that they're worrying about their little sons growing up and being at risk of being accused of, as many lynching victims were, um, unjustifiably, of raping or having relations with a white woman. Um And so, you know, I put together, you know, everything I know, not just about what's happening to Lewis and Priscilla, because, again, the documentation is very uh, sparse, Um, but about, you know, what it was like for black people to be living, you know, in the Jim Crow South, and, and, and sharecropping and living with sort of the um, the terrorism, the white terrorism and vigilantism of lynching at the time. Um, and so I'm building up that world that Priscilla and Lewis inhabited from a variety of different sources.
0: Now, after they made the move, they had children to get sick that told us so much about tuberculosis. Can you give us uh, some details on how the community saw tuberculosis in among blacks?
1: So tuberculosis was a leading and it, at some point during the turn of the century and from the 19th to the 20th century was the leading killer uh, among particularly uh black people who were living in urban areas. And by this time, Lewis and Priscilla had moved to Suffolk, Virginia, which was about 100 miles away. Um, It was a smaller city, uh, but still definitely a more urban area than where they had been living at Stony Creek in Nash County, North Carolina. Um, And like lots of other urban and semi-urban places, uh, Suffolk had a a real problem with tuberculosis among the city's uh, African-American residents, in large part because they're living in more crowded conditions. They're often living in less sanitary conditions. And it's the conditions in which tuberculosis spreads very easily. So Priscilla and Lewis in the first two decades of the 20th century lose three daughters, a son and a granddaughter, a tiny granddaughter um, to tuberculosis. Um, And this, again, we have to try to imagine what kind of effect did this have on Lewis and Priscilla, you know, and they, all of these children die in their home while Priscilla is trying to nurse them and take care of them. Um, And, you know, there's the medical, their access to medical care is very limited. There are at the time no black doctors in Suffolk. So they have to rely on white physicians who often look upon um, black victims of tuberculosis as unclean, as contagious. They treat them with, um, you know, anything but the kind of dignity um, that they deserve. Um, And, you know, you can imagine you know, the pain that this caused Priscilla um, to try to care for her children, to know that there's very little she can do for them. They don't have the money to send them to a fancy, you know, tuberculosis sanatoriums that were popular uh, with wealthier people who had tuberculosis at the time where you could go and try to recuperate and, you know, get healthy food and clean air and all those kinds of things. So there's really nothing for them to do, but sort of sit and watch their children die. Um, and it's the kind of legacy of, you know, racism and lack of access to, to care um, that continues to this day, unfortunately for African-Americans.
0: Now on a brighter note, how important was flowers in Mrs. Jerner's life?
1: Yeah. um, Priscilla earned her money once they moved to Suffolk. She was known as a fabulous gardener. Um, And when Thelma Dunstan and Roscoe Lewis first arrive at her house to interview her, she shows them around her magnificent flower gardens and tells them how you know, at Easter and the holidays, uh, Mother's Day, things like that, all the the white ladies in town, you know, come to her for their uh, table settings, their centerpieces, and their corsages because she is known as such a wonderful gardener. Um, and this is probably something she learned way back as a teenage girl when she was living, you know, near the people of Freedom Hill. Um once Freedom Hill is incorporated as Princeville, Princeville becomes known as the town or the city of flowers. Uh, they were known for their beautiful gardens. The houses were very modest. They weren't much to look at. They weren't very fancy. Uh, but they were known for having these magnificent, beautiful flower gardens. Um, so I suspect this is something Priscilla learned there. Um you know, and I think I'm a gardener. I love to grow flowers. And I think anyone who gardens will tell you, you know, it can be really therapeutic to work in the garden and to create, you know, a sense of beauty um, and, you know, sort of coax that life out of the earth. Um, And I think that, you know, I think that was probably true for Priscilla as well. Even when she's enduring some of these tragic losses, like the loss of her children to disease, um, you know, she is able to grow these beautiful flowers, and people appreciate her for that.
0: Now, you use the term refugee in the book. Can you explain a little bit more about the use of the term refugee?
1: Sure. And when I'm using the term refugee, um, I'm talking about, you know, people uh, during the Civil War, uh, who become, they're in the process of becoming free. So they've been enslaved, but the war is making its way to wherever they're living, their farm, their plantation, um, and a lot of times you see these people becoming, you know, they're refugees. They have to take to the road. They're, they're leaving, you know, where they were either because uh, war has made those places inhospitable to live. They're trying to get away from the danger. They're trying to find someplace else to go, uh, someplace better, someplace safer. And so what you see during the Civil War and during Reconstruction in the decade, you know, in the years after the Civil War, it doesn't stop when the war is over by any means, is you see a lot of movement throughout and around the South by, you know, four formerly enslaved people. They're moving around. They're going, a lot of times they're maybe not going that far, but they're, you know, moving to different locations. They're trying different things out. And in many of those cases, it's because they're being refugeed either from the war or during reconstruction by white violence and vigilantism like the Ku Klux Klan. They're being uh, run off their land, run out of their homes. And so, um, you know, other historians um Like Amy Taylor, uh, who wrote a book about Black refugees during the Civil War, really talks about how the war, um, and I would also argue Reconstruction, created a kind of refugee crisis similar to the ones we've been witnessing in our own time with the wars in Syria and now, unfortunately, in Ukraine. You know, America has had those too a long time ago, but we don't often look at the Civil War or Reconstruction as creating those kind of refugee crises
0: what message do you want to leave the audience with once they finish reading your book?
1: I really want them to get a sense, um, that emancipation, the process of becoming free and learning to think of oneself as free was an intensely personal journey, right? Um, You know, when the Civil War was over, they estimate that approximately four and a half million people were enslaved and became free. But that process was not sort of an instantaneous or, you know, sort of a single moment. Like, you know, and that's how we often think about it, I think. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued or the war was over, slavery was over and they were free. But it really didn't happen like that. This was an extended process. That took years. And in some cases, what you see with the Charter Generation and these interviews that I use in the book, it takes a lifetime for that sense of autonomy, that sense of freedom, that sense of sort of being liberated from the trauma of the past to to manifest itself, Um, In any kind of, you know, really sort of tangible way. And I often tell my students if there were four and a half million enslaved people in the United States at the time of the Civil War. Then there were four and a half million emancipations, right? There wasn't a single emancipation. There were four and a half million emancipations. Each one of them was individual. Each one of them was different. Um, And each one of them meant something different to the person that experienced it. And I think that's the power of Priscilla Joyner's story. I think the, uh, the power of these emancipation stories that are in the Federal Writers Project. And I just encourage anyone who, who finds these fascinating, um, you know, to go online to the Library of Congress Google Born in Slavery Library of Congress, and you can actually find these digitized online and you can begin reading them yourself. Um, And I think it'll just open up a whole new world for you.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time today. What's your next project? What are you working on next?
1: Oh Well... I think I am uh, moving a little bit into the 20th century. As I sort of said at the beginning um, of the show, I'm from Kentucky. I'm from a small town called Russellville, which is right on the central Kentucky, right on the Kentucky-Tennessee border, Um, not far from Nashville, Tennessee, really. And in 1908, there was a terrible mass lynching of four men um, in my hometown of Russellville, Kentucky. Um, and recently, um, some, uh, residents of the town, African-American residents have been trying to get a memorial and really trying to get the town to reckon with this history of this lynching and the legacy of this lynching. And I will say, you know, part of why I'm drawn to this project is because I didn't know that it happened, until I was in college and read about it in a book, right? Um, It was not a part of my sort of upbringing as a white person in this town, but obviously that wasn't the case for the black residents of my town. Um, And so I'm going to be digging into this, you know, uh, this part of my own personal history and try to uncover not only what happened in 1908, Why these men were lynched? um, What the sort of political and economic and cultural uh, world was like that uh, in in this part of Kentucky at the time? But I also want to answer the question: You know, why did why has how was it possible to sort of you know for the white residents of this town to push this? this history sort of underground and how have the african-american residents of the town um, kept that memory alive and what are they doing today to bring that story to light
0: well that sounds like a great project we'll be looking forward to it thank you so much for being on the show today thank you so much for having me